We're actually jumping into a new, I think I'm gonna call it a collection of talks. I don't wanna define it quite as much as a series, um, but it's a, it's a collection of talks around the topic of defining moments. And we're primarily gonna use the Old Testament. Um, and you know, typically, if you, if you think about a defining moment, especially in the Old Testament, God brings um, the people of God and, and sort of the presence of God kind of converge, and, and there's usually a choice or a decision or something that they face, and they have to decide which way we're gonna go. What are we gonna do, um, and, and where are we gonna take it from here? And you know, it's funny because um, it's probably these defining moments, uh, or even the concept of a defining moment, that gives rise to what some might term like an overnight success. You know, somebody is just going along in our modern culture and something happens and all of a sudden, boom, they're a huge success. And I would actually say, um, I don't believe in overnight successes. I believe in the slow and steady grind and work sort of behind the scenes and hard work that God does over days and years and years and years and years until someone comes to a point where he uh, releases them in a defining moment. So we're actually going to be looking at a number of defining moments over the next few weeks, and it's going to give, um, at points, sort of the sense of that sort of overnight success. Someone goes from being absolutely nothing to boom, they're on the, they're on the scene, they're, they're something, they're out, out front, and they're big and loud, and it's all going, and it's happening. But really, as we dig deeper, I think what you'll begin to see is it's the consistent um, surrendered and humility and contrition in the heart, and they're consistent day by day unglamorous, unexciting walk um, really before God that has brought them to this point where they face a defining moment. And a lot of them make great decisions and some of them actually um, don't make such great decisions. So we're actually gonna look at one of each today. Um, so take your Bible. Um, you know I love paper Bibles. You can use your phone, but I'd say get yourself a paper Bible and a pen if you want. And uh, I love to highlight mine up and make notes and dates and all sorts of things. So anyway, turn your, take your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 16, and we're gonna look at when Samuel um, anoints David. And I called this message today, It's a Heart Thing. And uh, it's just all about the heart. So we're gonna start reading in verse 16. I'm gonna jump around a bit, um, but I'll tell you as we go. So 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse one. The Lord said to Samuel, so Samuel is a prophet, um, he is also a judge over um, Israel, so he would have been leading the entire nation of Israel. And a um, little background here, but the nation of Israel uh, sort of looked around at all the other nations around them and they started kind of getting jealous and going, you know what, all these other nations have kings and we really want a king and we're tired of these judges, so they said, we want a king. And Samuel initially got all bent out of shape and God corrected him and said, whoa, whoa, hang on Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me, God, but go ahead and give them a king. So Samuel first anointed a king uh, by the name of Saul. And um, we're literally at, at a point where Saul has made a series of, of terrible decisions, rejecting God, essentially. Um, and, and that's where we pick it up here in chapter 16. So the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel, that is so scary to me. I have rejected him. And I think it, it, when you dig into that just a little bit, which is, this is very important, um, what God is actually saying there is, I provided Saul with ample opportunity to, to serve me, to walk with me, to embrace me, and to um, uh, sort of walk with me as a king, and Saul rejected me. And therefore, I've rejected him. Now, 
a lot of thing, one of the things that um, I think most pastors and preachers don't really like to talk about, I don't like to talk about it, uh, but one day we'll all stand before Jesus. We'll, we'll actually cross over. I actually had an aunt who passed away this week and um, I was asked to do her funeral, but I, to, to my own chagrin, I couldn't because of travel and coronavirus and et cetera. But she is now standing in the presence of the Lord Jesus. And we will all cross over that shroud into um, eternity. And, and the question in that moment is going to be, what did you do with Jesus? Did you uh, not just accept him, but did you receive him? Did you surrender your life to him? And did you give him your all? And the answer to whether or not Jesus is going to accept you or welcome you at that point in time is gonna be based on whether or not you welcomed and surrendered your life to him. So literally we have right off the bat, um, God saying, I have rejected Saul as king because he rejected me. Now he says to Samuel, fill your horn with oil. It's like a cow horn, it's full of oil with a little stopper in the end and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem doesn't mean anything to anybody at this point, it's just this little town. We know it as the place where Jesus was born. But he then says, I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And then I'm gonna skip over verse two. I'm gonna pick it up in verse three, the end of verse three. And it says, you are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they said, do you come in peace. Now, just a side note here, because this is not essential to my message, but I think it's important to sort of see. Um, most of us like God on our terms, don't we? So these guys all go out to the town. We're like, Samuel, we don't even want you coming into our town unless you're coming in peace, because Samuel's this man of God. And I think one of the probably challenges even for us as Christians is to begin to go, okay, can I assimilate and hear and listen to the voice of God, even if it contradicts what I want or what I like or what I feel? And so immediately uh, you have Samuel saying, um, when he arrived at Bethlehem and they said, do you come in peace? He replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then he commands them, therefore consecrate yourselves, which means prepare yourself, prepare your hearts, and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Very interesting here. Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed who stands before the Lord. Now remember, Samuel has literally been sent to this little town of Bethlehem and he's been um, tasked with, the, uh, with the, 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 the task of finding the Lord's anointed, the one who the Lord shows him. And then he'll literally take this horn of oil out of a big cow horn and he'll pour it over the head and literally anoint um, the next king of Israel. And when he does that, the power and presence of the Lord will come uh, mightily and powerfully and overshadow that new anointed king. What's actually interesting about that is um, you can look if you want, but in verse 14, verse 13, it actually says, after David was anointed, the spirit of the Lord came on him in power. The very next verse, verse 14 says, and the spirit of the Lord departed from King Saul. So really fascinating. It's like this special anointing that exists, this power that exists to, to, to rule Israel. And so Samuel is literally there and he's looking at all of Jesse's sons and Eliab, this one, comes out. And I'm sure you just begin to read between the, the texts here and what you just imagine is Eliab is probably tall, he's probably broad shoulders, he's well-built, he's handsome, he's tan, because whatever, you know, he lives in the Middle East, and, you know, he probably has a chiseled jaw, and, and literally Samuel looks at him and goes, oh my goodness, this is the next king. 
Here he is, he's so handsome, he looks, he looks perfect, he looks so kingly. And Samuel's old, that's what's funny to me. Samuel's not like, you know, a, a teenage girl or boy on Instagram or something. No, 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 Samuel's old and yet still, Samuel's literally about to die. This is one of his last tasks that God gives him. And still, Samuel is infatuated and drawn and gazes on the outside. Like he is so um, sort of taken and swayed by Eliab and the way this guy looks. And, and I love it here because verse seven, it literally says, but the Lord said to Samuel, now, now get this, Samuel just thought it. Like Samuel literally sees him in verse six and, and Samuel thought in his head, right? He's thinking, surely this handsome man is the Lord's anointed. And God answers, get this, God answers his thought. I would have loved to have seen this unfold. Verse seven, but God says to Samuel, answering his thought, do not consider his appearance, do not consider his height, for I have rejected him. Second time we've seen this, I have rejected him. And what do we know? That means that Eliab would have rejected God. The Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the Skip down. <clears throat> then, then verse eight and verse nine, the, Samuel's literally calling the other sons through. And um, then in verse 11, he says, uh, he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? So all, these, all the sons have passed in front of Samuel and there's none whom the Lord has said, this is the one. And so Samuel's sort of sitting, standing there at a total loss. And Jesse says in, in verse 11, there is still the youngest He's tending the sheep, he's unimportant, he's, you know, the littlest. And Samuel said, send for him. We're not gonna sit down until he arrives. So he sent and he had him brought in and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said to Samuel, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came on David, literally rested on David in power. And then verse 14 that I just quoted to you, it says, and the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Amazing, let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you enliven our hearts this morning? Would you fill us? Would you challenge us? Lord, would you make us hungry again for you, for your spirit, for your presence, to know you intimately, to walk with you powerfully? Lord, would you bring us to the same defining moment that you brought Samuel to, that you brought David to, that you brought Saul to. In your name we pray, amen. So when I was uh, 16, um, I had a um, 1984, I think it was 84, 83, uh, blue, kind of light blue Nissan pickup truck and it had a stick shift. And every time it broke, I took it to a mechanic by the name of Bubba. And I love Bubba. Bubba has literally been in my life. He has been part of my life since I was 16 years old. He's fixed every car we have ever had. I am loyal to Bubba. I will not take any car anywhere except a Bubba, my mechanic, and I love him. And we also, uh, some of you may know, but we have a landscaping um, company on the side, just a small little company, but we have a half a dozen or eight um, I don't know, we have a, a number of trucks that we take to Bubba and he fixes all of our trucks. And I'm, I'm thinking about this passage and I'm thinking about this whole concept of uh, the Lord does not look at the things human beings look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. 
And I'm reflecting actually on a couple of interactions I've had when I'm over there hanging out with Bubba. Because every time I go see Bubba, um, he says the same thing to me for the last year. And, and here's what he says. He says, Michael, I love the way you're running your landscaping company. I go, okay. And he goes, you have the finest uh, manager or assistant manager in place right now, Tim. And I love Tim. You could trust Tim. He says this every single time I've been there. He said, you could trust Tim with your money. He said, you could trust Tim with your kids. You could trust Tim with your wife. I have such respect for Tim. And then Bubba says, and I'm not gonna give you names, but then Bubba talks about uh, the few other managers and leaders who have helped me run Mattis Landscaping, and he proceeds to throw them all under the bus by name and go, you couldn't trust any of them. And I got to thinking, just as I was reflecting on um, sort of this whole passage, and I, I love it when I'm preaching because I actually sit under a passage. I almost sit in it and under it and let the Holy Spirit work in me and around it. But I couldn't help but thinking, and then I began to ask the question about Bubba, what is it that Bubba sees in Tim? Bubba sees a heart that is turned towards God. Bubba's not even a believer. He's not a, let me rephrase that. Bubba's not a believer Yet, I'm still working on him. But Bubba somehow intrinsically is able to see with the eyes of the Spirit and go, okay, here is a man of integrity. Here is a man whose heart is postured right before God and who is turned towards him and therefore he is trustworthy in all of the most sensitive and tender areas of your life. And every time I'm over there, Bubba goes, that man, Michael, is a good choice. And what's interesting is all the other uh, people that Bubba then mentions, they all looked good and they talked good and they sounded good, but some of them got me in a real hot water. I had to, it took me one time and had to spend two or three years paying off a mess that, that one of them made. But it's fascinating to me that Bubba has such good salt of the earth sort of instinct. I'm almost ready to start taking people by there and let them interact with Bubba before we hire them. But the first point that I wanna to make to you today is there is literally an external versus an internal understanding of life. And that's what Samuel really falls headlong into. He totally misses it. He's looking at the outside. God's looking at the inside so much so that God even rejects Eliab. But you know, when you have an external understanding of life, I think our, our gaze, um, if, if it's limited to the external, it shifts off the thing of, things of God, it shifts off the presence of God, it shifts off the beauty of God, it shifts off an awareness even of who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit interacts with our life on a daily basis, and it begins to um, shift into things that are more like um, appearance management. I'm, I'm actually at a point where I just signed off some of my social media accounts because it just so smacks of appearance management and um, taking a photo and then cropping it and editing it and you know and then I and then I post it and all we show is the good stuff, but life's not always comprised of just the good stuff. And so what begins to happen as you're scrolling through social media is you can look and you begin to compare and well, look how well they're doing and look what they have and I can't believe where I am and oh my goodness and et cetera et cetera. But when you have an external view of life, that appearance management can almost become a sort of an addiction that can suck you in. A second thing that I would point out here is in an external view of life, there can be um, an infatuation with things, nothing wrong with things, nothing wrong with a car or a house or a beautiful piece of art or even beautiful clothes or shoes or you know going to the gym and taking care of your body. But, but there can be an infatuation um, with those things that can cause you to miss 
what God's doing. The third thing that I would actually say that comes if you have an external sort of understanding about life is um, pleasure, your own pleasure, becomes the center point or the centerpiece of your life and aspirations. So everything you're doing uh, really downshifts into your own comfort and your own pleasure. And anything that makes you uncomfortable or, or is even painful, you refuse. Now let's contrast that and I wanna flip it and go, okay, what, what is an internal then understanding of life? Because I think an internal understanding of life first leads you um, to value God, the unseen, the unseen King, King Jesus. And so what I think you begin to immediately value on an internal understanding about life is, is truly like um, a heart attitude and heart uh, motives and even your heart to heart connection um, with a holy God. The second thing that I think begins to happen is if you're able to actualize that life is more about the internal than the external, then all of a sudden what you can begin to grasp and realize is the most significant things in life cannot be seen or tangibly touched. It's relationship with God. It's then relationship with the people around you. And it's hard to even um, see those things. They're almost intangible. They're almost unseen. They're eternal. They're, they're, they're heart things. You know, I would have to pause here for just a second because if we, if we defined heart biblically, uh, your heart is like the epicenter of decision. It's the place um, inside of you from which everything uh, flows. So the Bible even says, out of your mouth, the heart speaks. So a lot of times um, Christians try to clean up what they say or do or, you know, um, and, and they miss the greater reality of what's going on in your heart. So Jesus was highly uh, critical of the religious pastors and leaders, and they would have been synagogue leaders and Pharisees and Sadducees of the day, because they managed the outside, but their hearts were far from him. So the heart is literally the epicenter of, of decisions and choices, and, and out of um, what's going on inside your heart, your mouth will speak. So you can, at some level, have an indicator of what's going in your heart, what's going on in your heart by what is coming out of your mouth. So I was actually um, making application here and I was just thinking through, um, and I, I spent a, a good bit of time with some African-American brothers and sisters this past week. We actually took the yellow truck on last Sunday um, and we, we served the Warner Temple coffee and donuts and I, I got to get up to, with my friend, uh, Pastor Clifford Barnett, and I actually got to ask the entire congregation um, to forgive me on behalf of white America and white Christians um, for, for the hurt and the pain that has been caused. And I wanna say that um, as I talk about um, hearts and as I even talk about um, it being a heart thing in light of what's just happened with George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. And I want you to take your politics. Let me look into the camera like real hard for a second. Take your politics and push them aside. I don't care. For a, a human being to take his knee and put it on the neck of another human being and grind his face into the asphalt for eight minutes and 42 seconds. That is nothing but pure hatred. You can't tell me otherwise. That is pure hatred. Now what's fascinating to me is as I have talked to different elected officials, I've talked to different police leaders, I've had um, uh, once or twice removed um, interactions with actually African-American police leaders. And here's what I'm hearing, it's fascinating. 
the police are best trained in 2020 than they ever have been. They're more trained on all of these tough issues. They're more trained on how to handle them than they ever have been. And what this couple of African-American police leaders are literally saying is the training is not working. More education is not working. You know what they're saying? It's a heart thing. See, hatred lives in the human heart. It's a heart thing. And what is in your heart, what you're feeding your heart, what you're allowing inside of you will come out in your actions. It will come out in your words. You know, only God can change a heart. I'm literally standing with a dear friend of mine who's elected official and he's going, it's a heart thing. How do we change the hearts? We have to change the hearts. And I'm going, only King Jesus can change the heart of a man or a woman. And then it's the daily infilling and empowering of the Holy Spirit in our lives that changes us. Church, if I, if I was uh, vulnerable and honest with you, I would say, even now in our marriage, even now as I parent, even now as I live, I'm 39 years old, I've been on earth a fair bit of time, and there's never a day that goes by that I don't gaze back over my shoulder at that day and don't go, I could have carried the presence of Jesus more fully. I could have loved more completely. I could have carried greater humility. I could have carried greater compassion. Lord Jesus, would you continue to take me and change my self-centered heart? It's a daily type of prayer for me. And I'd actually call you as a church and anyone else who's tuned into this, if you cannot recognize your own heart sickness and then call on the power of King Jesus to change it, you are stuck managing appearances and trying to change the outside. But I've got news for you. When God gets a hold of your heart, when he changes your heart, it is a heart thing that he does. And then the life and the light and the love and the compassion and the grace that is inside of you can actually begin to overflow what it means to walk with King Jesus. So my first point is an internal versus an external understanding of life. My second point, and I love this, is God always chooses people for their potential, for their heart, uh, not for their achievements or their status. You know, I would actually say to you, if, if I would just put my cards on the table, that I've spent most of my life um, saying I was focused on the heart, but really being more uh, probably fixated with the external. It's really hard to get to the point where you can begin to see past it. Even Samuel, the great Samuel, the great man of God, the great prophet who heard from God powerfully and did mighty acts of God gets taken in by Eliab and his um, sort of exterior beauty. And I, I, it's probably worth noting there that it actually says, um, verse 12, um, David, he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. God, God's not necessarily into ugly or not beautiful or anti-beauty. That's not the case. It's just what matters is your heart. It's, it's a heart thing and that is the value. That is what God is looking for is a people whose hearts are postured after him and who are not fixated and consumed and addicted with the exterior. God always chooses people for their potential, for their heart, not for their achievements, not for their status. 
See, the issue with Saul, and we started out the whole chapter on this, the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you gonna mourn for this guy? I've rejected him. The, the issue with Saul, if you look back at Saul's life, Saul had the potential, Saul had the capacity, Saul had the anointing to be a great king, and yet the problem with Saul, get this church, God never owned his heart. God never owned Saul's heart. Saul rejected God. Saul went, no, 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 I'm going my way. I'm gonna do what I want. I'm gonna go where I want. I am gonna set myself up. And, and the kingdom position got to his head. The kingship went to his head and he began to elevate himself so that he rejected God and therefore God rejected him. The question in our lives is, is God truly the potter? And am I truly the clay? Can he form me? Can he make me? And will you and I let him use the circumstances of our lives, the good ones, the bad ones, the ugly ones, the difficult ones, to apply pressure and to change us? If you ever watched a, a potter form some clay, the lump of clay goes on the wheel and the wheel starts spinning and the potter forms it and changes it and molds it. And it's all about pressure. There's pressure that that potter applies to change and make that pot into a thing of beauty. It's the same in our lives, but the question is, are you and am I going to, on a daily basis, allow God to be the potter that forms and fashions and presses and pushes and changes to make us into his bride? The third thing that I wanna ask, it's a question question for us, not just today, it's a question for every day, but who owns your heart? You see, it's a heart thing. My dad, when I was little, I always loved this, but he would say, whose fool are you? And, and implicit in the question, he, he asked it a lot in my young teenage years, but he goes, whose fool are you? Whose fool are you gonna be? And it, Im, implicit in the question is, I'm a fool for Jesus. Whose fool are you? In other words, you're gonna give your heart to something. You're gonna be like Saul and you're gonna focus on the exterior. You're gonna focus on your own grandiosity. You're gonna try to elevate all of your holdings and amass your whatever you're trying to go after. Or, or you're actually gonna begin to take your heart and you're gonna surrender it to King Jesus. You're gonna bring it to him and go, God, would you take my thorny heart of flesh and would you change it and form it and make it and fill it, make it new by your spirit? You know, at home, in our family, there's times on any given week where I'll look at Abby or I'll look at one of the kids and go, would you forgive me? I was wrong. And what I'm doing in that moment and what I'm even modeling in that moment is here's another spot that life and the pressure and the whatever has revealed, God has revealed a spot in Michael's heart that's not fully surrendered, where Jesus is not fully king, where the Holy Spirit is not fully released to operate. And when he brings something like that to my attention, I first go, Lord, will you forgive me? I've sinned against you. But secondly, I'll go to one of the family members or whoever it is and go, would you forgive me? 
because that's activating the finished work of the cross, not only in my life, but in that relationship. And you wanna know how to bring the power of God into a relationship, into a marriage, into something with a child or a coworker or a friend. You begin to actually ask his forgiveness and ask him to come in. And then you ask someone else's forgiveness and ask the finished work, the power of King Jesus to come in and make something new. The question is who owns your heart? See, God's not concerned with your age, believe it or not. Whether you're old, whether you're young, whether you're somewhere in between. You know, it's funny, when I was younger, I always thought, I'm not old enough. Now I'm like, oh, I'm too old. I'm like, was I ever just right? God's not concerned about your past, believe it or not. His blood covers all the sin. He's not concerned about your mistakes. He's not concerned about your pedigree. He's not concerned about whether you're educated or whether you're not. He's not concerned about your socioeconomic position. He's not concerned about your weight or your appearance. He's not concerned about whether you have beautiful hair or whether you have none. What he is concerned about is who's got your heart. And because whoever's got your heart is also gonna be able to direct your future. Where are you going? Is King Jesus in you? Is he living through you? And are you on the path that he's called you to be? Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes a group of Pharisees and he says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. 